Hello, and you are listening to Eco-Justice Radio on KPFK Los Angeles, a project of SoCal 350 Climate Action. Our show presents environmental and climate stories from a social justice frame featuring voices not necessarily heard on mainstream media. Eco-Justice Radio acknowledges that we record the show on the traditional territory of the Tongva. Welcome. I am Jessica Aldridge. On today's show, Break Free from the Plastic Death Cycle, I will be interviewing Marcela Gutierrez-Graudinch, founder and executive director of Azul, and Melissa Awayo, member engagement officer for Break Free from Plastic U.S. and co-chair of Reusable L.A. Marcela is the founder and executive director of Azul, a grassroots organization working with Latinx communities to protect the ocean. Melissa has worked with a diverse group of stakeholders to drive change from grassroots community organizing, citizen science, bilingual, educational programming, coalition building, to policy and advocacy work. Melissa is a wife and mother of two, currently the member engagement officer for Break Free from Plastic and the co-chair of the Reusable LA Coalition. On today's show, Ecojustice Radio again explores the cost of plastic. Our guests will share what is happening with the Break Free from Plastic Pollution Act, congressional legislation meant to take real action, and a new report from Azul shining a light on the environmental justice impacts of plastic pollution. Also, be sure to check out Ecojustice Radio's special seven-part series, The Plastic Plague, connecting the dots between extraction, inequity, and pollution. To find the series, go to ecojusticeradio.org. Plastic. By now you have probably heard about the role it plays in polluting our waterways or the concerns with recycling. For many, it has become more obvious how intimate of a relationship we have with plastic, not just with coffee cups and utensils, but in clothing and carpet, our electronic devices, food packaging and beauty products. It is everywhere and it can seem like it is going nowhere quick, except Shedding into our oceans, our soil, our air, and our, our food, and even our bodies, including breast milk. But plastic comes from somewhere, and it carries with it a sordid history of environmental racism and climate disruption, starting with the extraction and refinement of fossil fuels and fracked natural gas, and then moving to the manufacturing, transportation, consumer use, and the final disposal of plastic. Our guest today explain why this should no longer be considered the life cycle of plastic, but instead a more accurate reflection in the death cycle of plastic. Currently, more than 300 million tons of new plastic is produced annually, and less than 10% is recycled. I'm talking all plastic, not just your water and detergent bottles. How can we stop the flow and break free from the stranglehold? Who is responsible? Is it the consumer through their purchasing choices and their litter management, or is there an extended responsibility necessary by the producer? The consumer is usually none the wiser of the social and environmental justice issues attached to the products we purchase, covered up by marketing campaigns and greenwashed promises. So how can we decipher the real solutions from the false solutions, so-called solutions that usually promote the continued stream of waste and social harms? Is zero waste the solution, or does the movement popularized through social media need to be reclaimed and restructured so that the focus is no longer on purchasing less wasteful items, but on social impacts and accessibility for all? 
Thank you for tuning in to Break Free from the Plastic Death Cycle. I am your host, Jessica Aldridge, and it is my honor to welcome our guest today, Marcela Gutierrez-Graudinch, founder and executive director of Azul, and Melissa Awayo, member engagement officer for Break Free from Plastic U.S. and co-chair for Reusable L.A. Welcome to Eco-Justice Radio. Today we are speaking not to the life cycle of plastic, but to the death cycle of plastic and the campaigns and community actions that are meant to protect and center communities and ensure impactful, equitable, and sustained solutions. Before we define what is meant by the death cycle of plastic, Marcella, you are the founder and executive director of the organization Azul. Can you tell us how Azul's work is related to the issues associated with plastic production and pollution? Yes, we we started doing ocean conservation work from a different standpoint, actually started more on protected areas and overfishing because that's where my background is. Um, I was formerly in the fishing industry. But one thing that we, we kept hearing from folks is that they were really interested in, in learning more about plastic pollution and what they could do about it. So from the beginning, it has been something that we gravitated towards because uh, the public was very curious about it. I think it has to do with the fact that it's something that people can see in their daily lives and that they feel they could do something about. So from the beginning, we've been around for 10 years from probably like nine years ago, we started working on plastic specifically uh, or against plastic pollution specifically because of public interest. And, And what is meant by the death cycle of plastic versus the full life cycle of plastic? And why is it important that we're creating this distinction? We talk about life cycle of plastics the same way that we talk about life cycle of other things. And first of all, it's important to see the cycle itself as a context. You know, when we talk about plastic pollution, people think about the little turtle with the straw up its nose and how problematic that is. But the problem is that by the time it actually gets to hurt the turtle, it has hurt a lot of other people in its wake. And so life cycle of plastics sounded like very cheery and positive when it's exactly the opposite and it's leading a path of destruction and, and, and illness and pollution in its wake from the actual uh, fuels that it actually necessitates. So, you know, fossil fuels and, and other things that and the production of plastics, the transportation, et cetera, et cetera, it's, it's impacting communities along the way. And Melissa, you act as the U.S. Member Engagement Officer for Break Free from Plastic. This group is leading on a national level piece of legislation that's meant to take real action on the plastic pollution crisis. And we're going to speak to this legislation momentarily. But first, what is and or who is Break Free from Plastic and, and what is the goal? So we are a global movement envisioning a future free from plastic pollution. We we have uh, over 10,000 individuals and over 2,000 organizations who are united through this common goal of bringing systemic change through a holistic approach, tackling plastic pollution across the whole plastics value chain, so across that whole death cycle, focusing on prevention rather than cure, and providing effective solutions. And I think that one of the pieces that is really key to the work that we do at Break from plastic is that prevention um, rather than cure. So we often talk about 
a tub that's overflowing, right? If you have a tub that's overflowing, you need to figure out how do you turn off that tap before you start bailing out that water. So really looking at how do we source reduce? How do we look at those upstream solutions that are actually going to get us to the, the kinds of reduction that we need to truly break free from plastic? And another thing that's really special um, about the movement is that we were born out of the global south. So we were born out of the Philippines, one of the countries that has been most impacted by um, plastic production in the U.S. And I think that that's another thing that's really key to the movement is we're really centered in um, those environmental justice values in making sure that we are working in collaboration and uplifting those communities that have been most impacted by uh, this problem. Marcella, uh, plastic is ubiquitous. It's it's all around us. It's it's a, it's in our clothing. It's in paint. It's in the gum that we choose. It, it was created in the late 1800s, and and most of it has never been recycled. And before a plastic product is even bought and used, there's this whole process to extract and refine and manufacture the oil and the natural gas that go into this product. How is plastic production related to environmental racism? and climate disruption, even before it becomes some plastic gadget that you, you that maybe we have the opportunity to recycle? We talk about this production conveyor belt or production line, distribution line, et cetera. And what you can notice all throughout is that these areas are actually located in places where people have the least amount of political power and the least amount of economic power. And so they are both stuck to these places in the sense that they really maybe don't have the capability of moving as easily as other folks, or um, they don't have the capability or or they don't seem to have the capacity to move these this infrastructure outside of where they live. And so on top of that, sometimes these facilities, this infrastructure moves into an actual existing thriving community and they are so dangerous that they will drive out of their industry and then it becomes a, a, a vicious cycle. For example, I live for a time in the West Contra Costa in the Bay Area and people talk about the relationship that how dependent Richmond is from one of the refineries that's there and how, well, you know, people should be happy because there's all these jobs. But what they don't realize is that before that refinery actually got to town, there were other bigger infrastructure with union jobs that were in the area that actually left town because they felt that it was too unsafe. And for example, I lived through at least one explosion there. And I can't even imagine what people that live in that immediate vicinity have to deal with. So if you talk about that refinery area, they're in Richmond, which has lower socioeconomic index um, than, say, having it somewhere in Palo Alto or in a, in a more affluent area like San Francisco. So it, it's this pervasive, rather pernicious problem where you have people going and you have this infrastructure going to areas that are already in a precarious situation and then they make it even more so. Yeah, one, one place that comes to mind with that question is the Formosa plant in, in Louisiana, right? You have an area in Louisiana known as Cancer Alley, which is a 85-mile stretch along the lower Mississippi River between 
Baton Rouge and New Orleans, which has for decades served as an industrial hub with nearly 150 oil refineries, plastic plants, and chemical facilities. And a Taiwanese plant, or I'm sorry, a Taiwanese company named Formosa Plastics was looking to build a even larger plant in this area that has already been so hard hit, where you're seeing the risk of cancer from air pollution in that corridor being 95% higher than it is in most other places. And you're seeing that disproportionate impacts of COVID as well. And the reason they were trying to put it in that place where these citizens are already carrying such a, a huge toxic burden and overload. And the reason they were doing that is because it wasn't an accident. It was very intentional. Um, as Marcia mentioned, it's a lot of these people who have, you know, they, they cut off resources, they cut off information, and they think that they're not going to fight back and that they don't have the resources and the time to fight back. And the beautiful thing about this story is that they did. They rose up and they fought back. You have organizations like Rice St. James, LA Bucket Brigade, individuals like Sharon Levine, concerned citizens of Louisiana who are doing incredible work organizing their community and saying, no more. We will not be poisoned. We will not, you know, you come breathe this air. You come breathe this air. And if you don't leave with the headache, if you don't leave with the stomach ache, we'd be surprised. Not only have they stood up and rose up against this, but they have been successful. And so they actually got the Army Corps of Engineers to pause on the permit that was already set to go. They were going to be building on where there were slaves had been buried. Um, so on, on burial grounds and none of that mattered to this company and the, the citizens rose up. And um, now the Louisiana city council members just voted to revoke Formosa's permit. So they're doing really amazing work. And I think they're an incredible story of how working together in collaboration, it's, it's the David and Goliath, right? And so I think the more of these stories that we can have and and working together, the more that we can have the oil companies shaking in their boots. And that's a great segue into the next step in this process, right? We, We use this product and then we have to dispose of this product and it goes somewhere. So, and that's... What are the downstream effects? What, what's happening once it's disposed? Who's having to manage that waste? And how is that a environmental racism and climate disruption issue? So we talk about recycling as if it's actually happening. And we just created a report about this and we talk about, and again, not the first ones to talk about this, but we talk about recycling as wish cycling. So I think that's one of the biggest things that people that's one of the biggest cons that people actually re- think that they put out their recycling bin, it's going to actually all get redone and reused. And somehow at some point they buy it again in the supermarket or something like that. But the fact is that the prices of virgin plastic and new plastic are so cheap, comparatively speaking, to the recycling and disposing of the recycling in a different manner that it's not the case. And so I find it really interesting because it, this is something at the global level, and this is why it's important for organizations like Breakthrough from Plastic that actually comes from the global south that has the most impact at this at this global level, lead the conversation. Because when we talk about folks like Justin Trudeau got a lot of press, was it like a year ago, two years ago, he made this humongous announcement about how Canada was going to ban all single-use plastics on utensils and all this stuff, and it was all over the news and everybody was so excited. And that same week, they found a container of plastic waste that was illegally being shipped to Indonesia. So it's really important to look at the big picture and look at everything that's happening because, you know, it's really easy to make these grandiose 
yet non-detailed announcements while at the same time continuing to ship the waste to places where it could be, you know, people have to deal with it in terms of plastic itself, or it could be something worse like incinerator, et cetera. So yeah, just to, to add to what Marce was saying, I was on a rally recently and, and Senator Merkley from Oregon um, recently called it the, the, the three B's. We talk about the three R's, right? We grow up thinking about the three R's when the reality of the situation is that it's, it's really the three B's. Most of our trash is either going to get buried in a landfill, it's going to get burned in an incinerator, um, or it's going to be borne out to sea. And again, who are those communities that are facing the biggest brunt of that? The same communities that were facing the, that burden um, at the point of extraction, who are living near those corridors where the where things are getting shipped where things are getting you know releasing those pollutants even just having traveling from place to place so uh Marcia mentioned how a lot of our waste gets exported out to other countries uh, the U.S. continues to export 225 shipping containers of plastic waste per day to countries with limited or non-existent waste management systems 225 shipping containers so I think when if you think that you put your trash in the your plastic and the recycling and that you did your job. Um, unfortunately, there's so much more to that. Very, very little of that is actually getting recycled. And sadly, when most of us were patting ourselves on the back, we were sending it to other countries, places like Indonesia, places like the Philippines, where they suddenly had to deal with all of this waste, um, where sometimes it's getting not just incinerated in, in like the way it is here in, in the U.S., but in open land, just open land and where those fumes are getting released, um, where you have trash getting dumped in front of people, right in front of people's homes. So sometimes you walk out and you just have this huge pile of trash. So wind can come and pick that up. Rains can come and take that out to the sea. And then those same countries then get blamed for being some of the biggest contributors to the plastic pollution crisis when the reality of it is that it's coming from countries like the U.S. We are one of the biggest producers. Um, We generate more plastic waste than any country in this world. And here we are patting ourselves on the back. So I think it, um, you know, like Marce mentioned, we need to take a step back and really take a look at that full picture and, and look at how can we source reduce, not just definitely we need to talk about how do we get rid of this in an equitable, socially just way, but how do we source reduce? Hey, listeners, quick break here. We hope that you are enjoying Eco Justice Radio on KPFK Los Angeles. You are listening to Break Free from the Plastic Death Cycle with host Jessica Aldridge, myself, and guest Marcela Gutierrez Graudinch, founder and executive director of Azul, and Melissa Awayo, member engagement officer for Break Free from Plastic US and co chair of Reusable LA. Also, be sure to check out Eco Justice Radio's special seven part series called The Plastic Plague, connecting the dots between extraction, inequity, and pollution. Melissa, what about micro and nanoplastics and these microfibers that they're these small particles of plastic they're found in our beer and our oysters and our drinking water and even mother's breast milk? You know, can you speak to this briefly? How is this even a thing and should we be concerned about it? We should definitely be concerned, I think. <laughs> so microplastics um, just refers to a size, right? It's a, a fragment of any type of plastic that's less than five millimeters in length. And what we have learned about plastics are that they do not biodegrade, but they do break down. Or I'm sorry, they do not break down, but they do break up into smaller and smaller and smaller pieces to where you end up with these uh, microfibers, even some of these like nanoparticles. So 
if you look at, I mean, you, you said it at the top of the call, plastic is ubiquitous. If you look at just the air that we're breathing, we are 100% breathing in plastics, breathing in these microplastics. If you've ever left out like a piece of plastic out in the sun and then you touch it and it starts to kind of degrade, that's what happens with a lot of um, our plastics in like, let's say the ocean. Uh, so ultraviolet light um, starts to make that plastic brittle, that wave action starts to um, crush it and break it down into these microplastics. Um, and they start to get really small. They can get ingested uh, by marine life. And um, I think the really scary part is that we're starting to see them in our bodies. And just because of the sheer amount of, of plastic that we have in our lives, it's all of that exposure is, is certainly making an impact. I think one of the craziest studies that I saw recently was that they're finding microplastics in women's placentas. So they're getting to our babies before they're even born. And I think that certainly begs uh, many, many questions. Um, we don't fully know the impacts of that, but I think even just taking a precautionary principle knowing that there are certain chemicals and additives that are added to plastics, what does that mean for us? And plastics haven't really been around for that long. So how are they changing? How are our bodies changing because of plastic? They're very much a part of our environment and they're very much a part of our body now as well. So I think that it is something that that is concerning and that um, we should be studying. We should be looking at what are the impacts of this, especially now that we're finding them in, in women's placentas and in our water, in our salt. I mean, it's, it's everywhere. It's inescapable. So what, what are the impacts of this and how can we mitigate this? And again, how can we find ways to get rid of useless plastic, get rid of the, the chemicals and additives that we don't need in there, get rid of the types of plastics that we know are problematic, that we know have um, toxics like polystyrene, right? We know that's a um, that there are carcinogens in there. Why are we still using it? Why are we putting our hot foods on these plastics that we know are leaching these chemicals and ending up um, in our bodies? These are the kinds of questions that we should be looking at and really, you know, wh why are we fighting so hard to keep these toxic plastics that we put our food in and on. It makes no sense, except for, of course, profit. And Marcela, where then lies the responsibility and accountability when addressing the plastic pollution crisis? I think that a big part of this has to lie with uh, producers. And this is why folks have been talking about center producer responsibility and the fact that people need to really understand it's in the interest of the folks that are profiting from this to make it so that people think that it's in their daily lives that's creating the problem. And obviously, yes, we need to stop using plastics as much as possible in our daily lives. But at the same time, it, it's a ruse, right? It's, it's the folks that are making the most profit off of this are really just, you know, reneging their whole responsibility and any kind of impact that they have, which is tenfold much more by offloading the responsibility onto the public and onto the, into the folks at the same time, they, you know, they're working behind the scenes, working to preempt bills and legislation that could stem some of this pollution. They are, you know, spending an ordinance amount of money to actually impact the uh, development of policy as well to stop any of it. And so I think that it's important that, when we talk about what can the public do and what can people do, yes, it's about stopping your use, reducing your use as much as possible, 
but it's also about picking up the phone and calling your representative. It's also about picking up the phone and calling whomever you're purchasing from that's using too much plastic. It's also about use, you know, talking about the supermarket or whomever. It's just like use that voice as a consumer, as a, as a person in your daily lives and let them know that this is a problem. And that is a great segue into the next question to talk about the Break Free from Plastic Pollution Act. This is a nationally presented piece of legislation started in Congress. Melissa, what is the Break Free from Plastic Pollution Act? What is it asking for at the national level? Jessica, I am so glad you asked. No, I really, I'm so excited about this bill. Um, it is a federal bill that was sponsored by Senator Jeff Merkley of Oregon and Representative Alan Lowenthal from California, Long Beach. And it represents the most comprehensive set of policy solutions to the plastic crisis ever introduced in Congress. What's really exciting is that not only is this a kind of one of a kind or first of its kind bill, but it actually is building on successful statewide laws across the U.S. um, and outlining practical plastic reduction strategies to realize a healthier and more sustainable and more equitable future. So a few of the ways that this legislation is seeking to meaningfully address plastic pollution is by EPR. So that's a big one, right? The plastic polluter pays principle. So shifting the responsibility for waste management and recycling to manufacturers and producers. um, That's a big part of this bill. Setting up a national beverage container refund program. Um, So here we have that in California, but this is not something that has been um, established across our country. And we see huge numbers of those bottles back when you have something like that beverage container refund program, Um, establishing minimum recycled content standards, phasing out certain single use plastic products that aren't recyclable, like my one of my least favorite expanded polystyrene prohibiting plastic waste from being exported to developing countries. So that's closing that loophole that we talked about earlier of how we're able to ship out our waste to developing countries. Placing a pause on new plastic facilities until the EPA updates and creates important environmental and health regulations on those facilities. So that's a moratorium that we're really excited about. And then another new addition is requiring language access for limited English proficient communities impacted by plastic pollution so that they can receive the information they need in the language they better understand. So sometimes you have communities like, let's say in Texas, um, where you have a high Latino population. And if those communities aren't getting the information in Spanish, then they might not be able to take in the per- uh, partake in the permitting process to know when there is a chemical fire. So really important things that these communities should be able to provide input, that they should be alerted about. They need to be able to get that that information in the language that they speak. So those are some of the things that the bill is aiming to do. And we're really excited because again, it's it's not just looking at downstream solutions, but it's really looking at it from a comprehensive way, really looking at it from a systemic lens and seeing how we can actually reduce the amount of plastic that we're creating and protect those communities that have been most heavily impacted. And for our listeners that may not know, I know that all three of us, um, we have so much background in in the waste industry that sometimes terminology people might not know. So EPR is Extended Producer Responsibility. Marcella brought it up as well. And then EPS or Expanded Polystyrene is all that foam, those foam containers out there. So putting that out there, just in case people may not know. Melissa, this is the second time that the Break Free from Plastic Pollution Act is being introduced. What's different about it this time? 
Yeah. And, and uh, before I even answer that question, I really want to give a huge shout out to the congressional aides for Senator Merkley and Representative Lowenthal, because they have done an amazing job really taking the time to have consultations with those environmental justice communities, with indigenous communities, with the business voices and business leaders. Um, so really doing their due diligence to talk with and connect with those folks who this piece of legislation would regulate, would um, protect, especially. So I think that that's something that's really, really important. And I just really applaud them for, for taking the time to do that. And you'll see that some of the, because of some of those conversations that's reflected in um, some of the updates that were done to this reintroduction of the bill. So we loved the bill last year, but we're even more excited about it this year. So one of the things that I mentioned earlier was the strengthening of environmental justice, um, including the language justice requirements, so that language access piece. Eliminating loopholes is another update. So they're closing that waste export loophole by banning exports to countries who themselves re-export waste to countries outside of the OECD. So those are developing countries. It's expanding on some of the previous provisions, like updating recycled content standards to a more aggressive timeline, requiring that plastic beverage containers include 50% post-consumer recycled content by 2030, which uh, previously was 30%. So really getting some more aggressive numbers on there. Um, expanding language, tackling plastic pellet pollution to regulate effluent discharge limits, including new provisions to address additional sources of plastic waste. So the biggest one here was microfiber pollution. So we, we talked, we touched on microfiber pollution, right? Um, one of the ways that we get microfibers out in our waters is also from just us washing our clothes. A lot of our clothes is synthetic nowadays and releases tons and tons of these little microfibers straight out into our oceans uh, because our sewage system wasn't meant to capture those. So even though that water is getting treated, it's not capturing those microfibers and they're making their way out into our oceans where they're ending up in marine life, potentially ending up in us. So again, all of all of that cycle there. So one of the, the ways that they're looking to address that is by mandating filters on washing machines and a competitive grant program to fund research on best practices for upstream microfiber pollution prevention. There's also some exciting pilots and funding for reusable systems. Um, so that's something that uh, reusable LA folks were really excited to see as well. So those are some of the, the things that we're seeing that have been updated. And again, we're just seeing that this bill is getting stronger and it's building um, even more excitement because, it, because they're taking the time to have those conversations and making sure that the things that the communities really need are being reflected in the policies that we're fighting for and supporting. And how can people get more information on it? How can they support it? One of the best ways to plug in is to just go to our website. So um, breakfreefromplastic.org forward slash pollution dash act. So that's breakfreefromplastic.org forward slash pollution dash act. And there's all kinds of great resources and links on there from how to contact your legislator. Um, so it's a really easy plug and play where all you have to do is put in your information. And we've essentially written the message for you, asking your legislators to become co-sponsors of the bill. So really putting that pressure on saying, hey, 
This is important to me as a constituent. Please co-sponsor this bill, as well as amplifying on social media. As much as this is a um, policy, um, a, a piece of legislation that's going to change laws, it's also a way to change the narrative. Um, for a long time, we've had really bad bills out there, and we've always been on the kind of defense, right, just fighting these bad bills off. Whereas with the Breakthrough from Plastic Pollution Act, this is actually something that we get to support and that we're excited about, and we get to point to as a real solution, as opposed to some of these other bills that maybe are weaker or really just aren't getting it and are focusing on those downstream solutions. So this is really a, a narrative tool as well. Um, and because it touches on so many things, there's got to be something in there that excites um, you, listener. Um, so definitely check it out and see how you can share a little bit more about this bill um, and get engaged, right? We have, I know that here in California, we have a lot of really amazing legislation that people are working on and we're definitely a more progressive state and doing more, um, not enough, but more. But you have other states uh, in the country that aren't even allowed to do anything. They have preemption laws, which is a ban on bans, and they're not allowed to do something like a styrofoam ban or a bag ban. Um, these really kind of commonplace things that we're seeing in a lot of these different states, some or, or cities or, or counties. Uh, some cities and counties are just hamstrung and they're unable to do that. So that's why a, a federal um, legislation is is really exciting. This is really this is really our moment. We have the right administration, so we are just. If, if not now, then when? So we're just uh, really encouraging you all to take the time to um, go on that page and contact your legislator, ask them to co-sponsor, share with uh, on your social media and get your friends to contact their legislators and really just keep pushing for this. Um, maybe you have a local newspaper and you can place a, a letter to the editor or um, an op-ed. Um, so all of that is on that website. Lots and lots more information there, including a FAQ and a um, fact sheet. So That's please great. plug oh, in, get involved. And Azul is... is releasing a white paper as well there on the environmental justice impacts of plastic pollution. What is presented in the Azul report and how is that related to the United Nations and their 17 sustainable development goals? Yes. So we are about to publish this or rather the UN environmental program is about to publish this. This is a report that looks at plastic pollution in that framework. And I do want to really um, reiterate that this is it may be news to some folks, it may be news to some people that this is an issue of environmental justice, social justice, but it isn't to the people that have been dealing and suffering through this problem for decades. So what we, um, the new thing here is that we're looking at how does plastic pollution actually impede the attainment of the sustainable development goals? And so we went through one, all the goals one by one, one to 17, and there's actually an issue with all of them. And usually when we talk about plastic pollution and the sustainable development goals, people talk about goal 14, which is life be, um, beneath water, but it's actually everywhere. So it, 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 a plastic pollution impacts gender, gender parity, because in fact, based on the products that women use and the products they're um, available to them, women are more exposed to plastics, be it by um, menstruation, pregnancy, and lactation, and things like one of the things that we actually hadn't noticed was, you know, when you talk about plastic pollution and water and potable water, um, I grew up in Mexico, and one of the things people talked about, well, there's no potable water coming out of the out of the tap, so what are people, what, what else are people supposed to, to do? 
And, you know, there's actual research with, with field work and proper studies, shout out to Dr. Pacheco Vega that did this, that looks at how actual plastic bottled water is impeding the development of, of the potable water in, in some places. So instead of plastic bottled water being a solution to a problem, it's actually being a crutch that some governments, in this case, he looked at Mexico, that allows governments to abdicate their responsibility towards the public to actually provide this water. So they're commoditizing um, this resource by bottling it and, and selling it off. And so it's not really a solution, but rather it extends the problem. And so we looked at all of them also from the fact that, you know, there's more, there's, 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 so that goes to governance. And then you talk about like the fact that there's more women working as, as uh, waste pickers in parts of the country and how that affects them. So we went through all of them, one to seventeen, and there's a problem there for everything. And it's it's a it's something that you know we needed to have that as a tool. We are big supporters of just like we we will support the BFFP at the at the national level. There's also a need for a um, worldwide legally binding treaty that actually looks at that and closes out those loopholes at the at the international global level. Hey listeners, quick break here. We hope that you are enjoying Eco Justice Radio in KPFK Los Angeles. You're listening to Break Free from the Plastic Death Cycle with host Jessica Aldridge, myself, and guest Marcela Gutierrez Graudinch, founder and executive director of Azul, and Melissa Awayo, member engagement officer for Break Free from Plastic US and co-chair of Reusable LA. Also, be sure to check out EcoJustice Radio's special seven-part series called The Plastic Plague, connecting the dots between extraction, inequity, and pollution. Marcela, you are just speaking to how Azul is uh, has created this white paper in regards to plastics pollution. How do you see that report being utilized? Is there a greater purpose to that report? Personally, for us as an organization, yes. For us, it is, I think, the hope that it will be a tool for people to start conversations in their own localities with their own representatives, governments. I think it's important to have this this issue of environmental justice and plastic pollution discussed at the level of the UN environmental program because it is, you know, while people have been living this for for decades, it is news to some folks. It is news to some people that plastic pollution is a problem outside of the ocean or that it doesn't just start with the turtle in the straw. It is news to some folks that people have been dealing with petrochemical problems and and infrastructure in their backyard, or that they have been living through areas that have higher incidences of cancer and and other illnesses, and that they have been excluded sometimes from the the process, the permitting process, or the, the remediation process. And so I think it's important to have a, a, a recognized body like the UN Environmental Program to talk about this at that level. And so for us, it's important to have this tool and this conversation starter. We definitely think that it's just a start. I think that it's an invitation for more folks to pay attention and for more folks to invest more resources in this. I can tell you that we wish we could have done a lot more as it relates to getting more information and having more case studies about or studying waste picking in other parts of the of the world we weren't able to you know pandemic and all this stuff but it's a start it's a conversation start and it's an invitation 
We're talking about the legislation that's coming out, the the report that's coming out. Let's talk about solutions and false solutions. It seems that every day I see a new product or a service or whatever is meant to be a solution to stop plastic consumption or magically compost, recycle, or reduce our waste. How do we decipher false solutions from real solutions? And what are some of those false solutions that you're seeing and what makes them false? Um, Melissa. That's a great question, Jessica. And I think essentially anything that is diverting our attention, energy, and resources away from a real solution is, is what I would consider a false solution. And that's anything that's look, that's not looking at the upstream, that's not looking at how do we source reduce, how do we create a circular economy. So it's usually things like you know, and usually being promoted by industry on those same folks who have been profiting um, from the plastic being produced that are um, promoting these false solutions like waste to energy, incineration, pyrolysis, chemical recycling, these techno fixes that they give really nice sounding names. And you're like, oh my gosh, who wouldn't want waste to energy? That sounds amazing. Or I love recycling. Chemical recycling sounds like a super cool tech thing. Like, yeah. But really what they're doing is that it's the same thing that they did with recycling that they're now doing with these other new terms. They keep, you know, they have different terms to to kind of confuse us, although some of them are are, um, genuinely different. Um, But really what it's looking to do is how can we keep consuming as much plastic and keep people distracted because they will keep feeling better about themselves if they know that there's this thing as chemical recycling or waste to energy or look, these eco bricks or whatever it may be. Anything that's not looking at how do we source reduce is more than likely a false solution. And I think if we look at who is funding it, who is benefiting from that, that says a lot as well. So unless it's, if it's prioritizing end of pipe technology over addressing the root cause, it's it's futile, right? We're, um, again, looking to bail out that tub before we look at how do we um, turn off that tap. What would you say about you know, these major beverage companies or grocery stores or whatever it is, and they make this public statement and they say, we have this new goal and we're going to go 100% recycled content by such date or 100% plant-based, or, and they have this arbitrary year and then people see this as this positive thing. Should we be lauding these companies for making these goals and then feeling comfortable about using their product? I think we should be holding them accountable to those goals. So let's find those goals and actually track it and say, hey, we want transparency. How are you actually going to achieve this? And what does it mean? Because a lot of the times they make these uh, really nice claims and then don't actually plan on sticking to them, have no actual real plan to to stick to them. So I think it's, it's really like, how do we hold those corporations accountable for the claims that they are making before we laud them? Let's prove it first, right? Prove it before we start applying plotting your um, commitment because it's words. It's words until we see action. And I think we've all seen way too many of those. We're probably a little cynical, um, more so than the, the average um, person. So yeah, it's it's great. You want to do that? How are you going to do it? How do how are you going to keep us updated on how you're doing that? And what is the the real benefit or is this just a PR push? And zero waste. Let's touch on that real quick <laughs> before we get to solutions. And I'm not saying that zero waste isn't a solution. I mean, it's, it's indigenous by nature. It, the name of it has actually been around since the 70s or 80s, but it's been co-opted in the last 10 years to be this sort of social media popularized lifestyle movement that 
seems to center around white women fitting stuff inside of a mason jar and really kind of deals with what do we do with our waste once we have it? And, and it's become this brand concept for businesses and people. What are your thoughts regarding the current narrative around zero waste? Is it effective? Is it inclusive? Can it be restructured and reclaimed? You know, I was on a I was on a conference not too long ago, and somebody was talking about zero waste as one of the solutions. And um, one of the questions was, well, you know, how do we ensure that lower income folks have the money to buy into zero waste, have the money to buy the stuff that they need to go zero waste? And that itself just really illustrates what the problem is. Zero waste right now, I'm not saying how it started, how it can be, but right now, like you aptly said, it, it's this thing that you buy into, that you purchase into. And so this is a fake solution, right? So if you're if you're in the supermarket and somebody's trying to sell you something as a solution to plastic waste, it's you're having to spend money into it. It's likely not the solution. I mean, I'm not saying all of it is not, but it's likely something else. If you're having to buy more things to go zero waste, I would really look long and hard into what that really is. I mean, for me growing up zero waste or less waste or, you know, not so much waste meant actually reusing what was around the house already and not going out there and buying yet more stuff that comes in yet more packaging and has to be transported and all this stuff and driving more, you know, production versus just actually reusing or spending less or demanding less, if that makes sense, of, of the planet. So, yeah, it's not really, it's not really inclusive, at least this narrative, like do people see it and think about like, oh, can I actually manage to do that? Do I have the facilities around me to to do that? I heard even mason jars were like in, in shortage this year because of the pandemic. I don't know. Like, so it's, it's a problem all around to me. It's just like, I think it should be reclaimed. I think that maybe there's a time for a different word or a different term, but that particular like Instagram brand of zero waste is like, yeah, it's, it's quite off-putting. Melissa, do you have anything you want to add to that? You already know I do. Um, <laughs> I think Marcia really covered it, but um, just just wanting to add how I, I really do think that we need to either come up with a new term or, or reclaim it because zero waste also means different things in, in different. Um, so, for example, in, in Break Free from Plastic, you know, zero waste communities in in the Philippines, that's a thing. And it looks very different. It's communities working together to see what can actually be composted, what can be truly recyclable, and then what is not recyclable. Recyclable. That's where they do those brand audits to see, well, let's put the onus back on the producers, on the people who actually produce this waste. So really, you know, so many cultures and indigenous cultures, immigrant communities, they've been practicing zero waste. They've been practicing sustainability. They're just resourceful AF and they know how to take care. They know how to live with the earth. They know how to not use as much. So I think if we can start expanding the way that we think about zero waste to go beyond the mason jar. I can't remember who said it, but social justice doesn't fit in a mason jar, right? It's not always accessible to folks. Um, it was you. Okay. Um, but that's 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 exactly it, right? Um, it, it looks different for different people. And maybe it's not zero waste. Maybe it's low waste. Maybe it's just living and respecting Mother Earth, but really looking to how can we be more inclusive when we're talking about this and really giving props to, to the communities, the cultures who 
who have been doing this forever. Like, let's turn to them. We don't need to buy a book or a, you know, new bottle to understand zero waste. Let's go to our indigenous elders who have been doing this for forever. And they talk about it differently. So let's have those conversations and, and really uplift that wisdom um, that has been there for, for generations. And this sounds like the start of a conversation about real solutions to our plastic crisis. So what do those real solutions look like? We have a, about seven minutes on the show left here. So let's let's talk about real solutions. Who wants to kick that off? Marcella, do you want to talk? Oh, <laughs> Melissa. <laughs> Real solutions, produce less plastic. <laughs> so really, again, I keep saying it, right? Source reduce, produce less, keep those uh, fossil fuels in the ground. Petrochemical industry is not going to be like, all right, sure, we'll just stop making less. No, they're driven by profit. They're driven by greed. So we really need those public policies in place. We really need individuals to start making those connections to, oh, that single use utensil in my hand is connected to that community that um, is living near near that near that point of extraction or um, near that facility encouraging alternative systems right we we to be able to have to make zero waste and, and reusables and refill systems accessible we need full systems in place we need a full systems change it can't just be on every individual even myself you know I'm a mom of two I work really hard I don't have time to be going to five different stores to to get all my stuff in bulk I do my absolute best but we need support we need things to change and we need them to change on a systemic level. Um, supporting recycling that actually works. So let's, uh, recycling has a role here um, as part of the solutions, but it, it, it's not going to be chemical recycling. It's not going to be waste to energy. And we need to look at what are the ones that don't have a value? Like, why are we still using those? Let's change the way that we're doing things. Let's have truth and labeling. Let's actually be able to understand how recycling works and, and stop coming up with these gimmicky things that are meant to confuse people and are meant to continue keeping us using all of these plastics um, a lot of the times that we don't need that we didn't ask for source reduce produce less plastic turn off the tap marcella do you want to add to that pick up the phone pick up your email account whatever you want ask your representatives ask the folks that you're buying your groceries from ask the folks that you're buying frankly anything from ask them to stop using so much plastic that you can start doing today tomorrow. Melissa, you had mentioned a brand audit. What is a brand audit? How is this a helpful tool for company accountability and when we're talking about real solutions? Yeah, so uh, Break Free from Plastic has these um, brand audits, which they are a citizen science initiative that involves counting and documenting the brands found on plastic waste collected at a cleanup. And this is done to help identify the companies responsible for plastic pollution. So if you've ever been to um, a beach cleanup or a community cleanup, it's kind of like a supercharged cleanup in that you're going beyond picking up the trash and maybe tallying the kinds of um, items that you're finding, uh, but you're actually getting down to the nitty gritty and seeing who produced this. Um, and th this is then all of this information is collected across, um, across the globe. And we put together a report. So we've done three reports. And not surprisingly, we keep seeing the same corporate polluters at the top um, companies like Coca-Cola, like PepsiCo. Um, so really, it's a way to say, hey, Coca-Cola, you just came out with this really nice sounding greenwashing campaign. But look, hey, we found 
do you hear in this many countries, this many items? And it really goes from beyond this kind of anecdotal thing to we have hard numbers and um, data to go along with that. And it's also a way to shift that narrative for people because for so long, the narrative has, the onus has been on consumers and on municipalities. And it starts to create that aha moment for folks um, as they're doing this brand audit of like, oh, wait, the producers are responsible. The frontline community organizations have historically been working on social and environmental justice issues. And as with all nonprofit organizations, funding is key to survival, but it can be very hard to come by. There are foundations that are providing financial support. However, the distribution of that funding is not always equitable. Can you explain what is happening? How is this in opposition of of moving forward on real solutions? I think that frontline organizations usually are living this impact in a more direct way than some of the larger organizations. Unfortunately, philanthropy and the whole funding movement, while it has started to change, still hasn't quite gotten to the place where it's funding frontline organizations and organizations led by communities of color in the same level that it does with other folks. And so that is actually a problem because we should be we should be having folks that have the biggest impacts lead this movement and have the research and they are but have the research to lead it in a way that allows them to do the work that they need to do. What can you do about it? If you don't know anybody in philanthropy, you can surely pick up a call and pick up a phone and call your local organization and send them a couple dollars yourself and start from there. Like let's actually like also start uh, small donors or can do a big difference as well. But I do think that we need to change that conversation because the folks that are the most well-resourced don't usually have that direct experience and they're not going to be able to do as good of a job at this as the folks that do. Yeah. And to, to add to that, you know, I, I think Marcela mentioned how things are changing, thankfully, but um, for a long time, it was the the larger NGOs who are getting the bulk of the funding and the environmental justice uh, and social justice organizations who are on the ground doing doing the hard work with those communities, um, oftentimes living in those impacted communities who really know those communities best, who know what's really going to work for them, right? Sometimes you think you know, but you really don't unless you're living it and and really living in community with those folks. Um, so I, I think the, the funding model really needs to change to look at how can we fund those, more of those organizations and why aren't we funding those organizations? Maybe even starting with that question, right? Um, A lot of that is sometimes baked in racism and white supremacy culture um, that we so often see that's baked into all of our, all of our society and culture. It's certainly going to make its way into the nonprofit um, space as well. And so you sometimes have, you know, some of these foundations who are like, well, I don't know if that environmental justice group is, is going to be able to do that report, or I don't know if they're going to, you know, be around in in a couple of years. And it's like, well, they would be around if you funded them and actually got them to do the work. And sometimes, you know, with with very good intentions, um, you have some of these larger NGOs who will get these big grants to do work in their communities and then subgrant 
a really small amount to those uh, organizations who are actually doing the work and then taking that work and putting it in a grant report and being like, look, we did a great job. And like, we gave them some money um, when nearly it was not nearly enough. And they were taking the majority of that funding themselves. And it should have gone directly to those environmental justice communities and, and those organizations who, again, know what those communities need best. So I think what we're starting to see are some of those larger NGOs have had their, their kind of aha moments. And, you know, it's, it's sometimes if, if you're working in the sector, it's, you know, if you're getting, if you're applying for a grant, instead of sub-granting out, make those introductions, bring them to the table and say, hey, I want to introduce you to this, to this amazing organization who is doing incredible work and I cannot fulfill my grant requirements without them. So we need to both get funded. And it's, it's building those relationships and making those connections. Don't be the gatekeeper, make those direct introductions and give them the, if an organization, I, I forget, I, I've heard this on the webinar, but if an organization is doing an amazing job, throw a bunch of money at them. They could do so much more with that money than probably that larger NGO can. Right. Um, so it's really starting to, to look at um, again, why, why aren't those organizations getting the funding that they need? How can we do things differently? Sometimes that means seeding a little bit of power and that can be really challenging for organizations. But if you are committed to the cause, if you're really serious about getting to, to, to meeting those goals, then we need to do that. It's, it's sometimes not just like making sure that someone gets a seat at the table, but saying, hey, I actually have five dishes and you only have one. Can I share a couple? So making sure that you're, you're really looking at, um, are we being equitable? Is this a white savior complex that, that is happening here? Um, you know, because once, once you're successful, those organizations leave and then you have those communities that are still continuing with that and sometimes end up getting, then they're dealing with other issues. Like now that that incinerator is shut down, guess who's going to start moving into those communities? And so those communities that face those burdens that fought really hard are now going to get kicked out of their homes. So it, it really is um, very complicated sometimes. And again, the people who are living on the front lines are the best equipped to be able to address those um, problems and to get at the real solutions that are going to work for the community. Not to mention, you probably, from a philanthropic point of view, you probably have the most return on your investment if you grant directly to the community folks versus going to, you know, I've heard of people that get grants to explore outreach to EJ communities. Well, why don't you just actually give it to the EJ community instead of exploring, you know? And so what could be like half a billion dollar grant to explore could be transformative in the hands of actually like the folks that are actually doing the work. So not saying that you have to quantify everything, but if you wanted to go that way, that's also important. And in our last few minutes here, let's talk about where people can get more information. Where, where can they find out about the brand audit? Where can they find out about Break Free from Plastic and the upcoming and the legislation that's going on right now? And how do they get involved? Um, remind, remind our listeners of all of those great resources. Absolutely. Um, so really encourage you all to check out breakfreefromplastic.org. Uh, that's our website and we're up on all the um, social channels as well. So please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, 
Pinterest maybe. I don't know. Um, just kidding. <laughs> but um, just uh, that's uh, one of the best ways to, to just stay in touch and to just um, be up to date on what's happening. Um, you can become a sign up as an individual supporter and you'll get our monthly newsletter. So you won't get spammed. just a, a newsletter once a month. And it's a really great way to, to stay connected to the efforts that are happening, um, not just here in the U.S., but um, in other regions as well. And Marcella, how do our listeners find and support Azul as well as read the upcoming white paper once it's released and any other resources that you want to provide? Yes, you can find us at azul.org. So that's azul.org. Um, that's our website. That's also the, the name of all the social channels. No Pinterest for us, sadly, but definitely Twitter, um, Facebook, and Instagram, sometimes even Clubhouse. Um, so you can find us all there and all the resources, and we will be publishing, we'll be posting the report there as soon as it's available in the next couple of weeks. And our last question, I know that it has been mentioned, uh, Reusable LA, before we end today, all of us on this call, uh, Break Free from Plastic, Azul, SoCal 350, Adventures and Waste, which is my nonprofit, we're all part of this coalition called Reusable LA, and they're currently working on a campaign called Skip the Stuff at both the city of Los Angeles and county of Los Angeles level. With our remaining time here, what is Skip the Stuff campaign and where can people get involved? Yeah, so Skip the Stuff is uh, Reusable LA's latest legislative push. It would require takeout and delivery extras like single-use utensils, straws, condiments, napkins, all those little things that you didn't ask for um, to be provided only upon request. So if you need them, you can get them, but if you don't, you don't need to wait, waste it. So it's an opt-in versus opt-out, right? Um, you don't have to, a lot of the times if, if you're kind of in this movement um, and you're wanting to order takeout, out and you're like, oh gosh, if I order takeout, I'm probably going to get a bunch of single use utensils and things that I didn't ask for. And so you'll make all of these notes and you'll call and you'll leave all these messages and then you'll still end up with that. Um, I remember, I think it was uh, Emma from Final Straw who called it non-consensual plastic. Um, so this is a way where you don't have to go through all that effort, um, but if you need it, all you have to do is ask for it and you get that. Um, I think in the time of uh, the pandemic, it's extra important because we're seeing so much of that stuff go to waste and so many of us are are eating at home where we don't need those extras. You probably don't need them anyway. Carry a reusable uh, set in your purse. But anyway, um, so it's it's really starting to get at that behavior change that we really need to see. And the best part is, is that it's going to save um, those restaurants who have been so hard hit during this pandemic. It's going to save them money. So really kind of dispelling that myth that you have to pick between environment or um, business. Guess what? Everybody wins. So um, visit the website, reusablela.org, um, sign the petition, sign up to get updates. We have over 3,000 signatures, um, but we could absolutely use your support to keep putting that pressure and let them know. I know this seems like very low hanging fruit. It kind of is. But if they see all of um, the, a big support for this, then they know that there's appetite for more, that there's that pressure from public to, to keep pushing for more and go for more comprehensive legislation down the road. Thank you. Thank you to our guests today, Marcela Gutierrez-Graudinch and Melissa Awayo. And thank you to our listeners for joining us. This has been Break Free from the Plastic Death Cycle. Also, be sure to check out EcoJustice Radio's special seven-part series called The Plastic Plague, connecting the dots between extraction, inequity, and pollution. 
Please connect with us on social media at EcoJustice Radio, Adventures in Waste, and SoCal 350. If you like what you heard and you want others to be informed, subscribe to that podcast, share those episodes, and help us continue our efforts by donating to the show at EcoJusticeRadio.org. You have been listening to EcoJustice Radio on KPFK Los Angeles, a project of SoCal 350. The show can be found on kpfk.org, all major podcast apps, and at ecojusticeradio.org. Created by Mark and J.P. Morse, executive producer Jack Guy, producer and host Jessica Aldridge, engineer Blake Lampkin, and original music by Javier Cadre. And until next time, remember, the power is yours.